Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Room and Room Podcasts. This episode is one of a series of podcasts brought to you by the Facebook group, The Room and Room, proudly supported by PGG Rights and Seeds. My name's Charlotte Westwood, and in this episode, we're going to explore how we can interpret the various numbers and bits and pieces reported on feed test results. In this case, for samples of either pasture, silage or baleage. Now, depending on which uh, lab that you send your samples away to and which of the tests that you request, you'll potentially come back with a heap of different test results reported on full and final silage feed test results. Because for some of the results you'll get back, you'll have a page or sometimes even more of numbers to ponder over, we're going to split this topic over two episodes. Hopefully that'll make this topic an easier one to tune into and to digest. So take a listen to this, the first episode, in which we're going to explore how really we should be sampling our silage or baleage. And and this episode will also cover off on some of the mineral results that you'll get back from your results. And then in part two of this feed test analysis interpretation topic, we'll move on to the other stuff reported on feed tests, such as the dry matter percentage, protein, fibre. And depending on some of the test results, we'll also discuss what levels of volatile fatty acids that are reported on silages mean and whether that matches up just how tasty uh, or untasty the silage may be for your stock class. We'll kick off first talking about the basics of collecting silage and baleage samples and then we'll move on to interpretation of the mineral results if that's the type of test that you've uh, requested from the lab. We're kind of hoping that many of you do routinely sample silage and baleages and send them away from analysis. If that's not normally your thing, hoping that maybe after tuning into this episode, you might be more keen to sample your silage, given that hopefully you'll feel a lot more confident about interpreting the results and what makes, in some cases, really good silage, or in some cases, sadly, not so good silage. But kicking off first... Feed testing or collecting samples from a stack or pit or bale of silage is is sometimes pretty straightforward to do. It's straightforward, especially if you're currently feeding out from your stack or pit of silage on the face of that stack. Or if every day you're feeding out baleage, then it's easy for us to reach in and grab samples from either the face of the stack or pit or from a fed out couple of bales of baleage. If you've got an open working face, you can walk across that face and take several grab samples of silage from the face. And ideally, you'd be wanting to grab those samples just after you've loaded up the wagon. So you're sampling from a fresh face of the silage that's just recently been worked and loaded into the wagon. Because otherwise, if you go back later in the day or tomorrow, you know, and, and that face has been sitting there for up to 24 hours, there'll be a bit of spoilage starting to happen. And that won't be particularly representative of your true silage as it's being fed to your stock classes. The same deal applies for baleage too, when you think about it. If you're feeding out currently, grabbing samples for feed test analysis is actually easy to do because you can easily reach in and grab samples. Yeah, on the other hand, if you're not yet feeding out and your stack or pit's all lovely sealed up and tyres touching cover it top to bottom, you don't necessarily want to open that stack just to sample from it. 
Similarly, if your uh, bales of bailage are stashed away uh, and you're not going to be feeding out for another month or two, you're going to have to make some holes in either that stack or pit or in the bales to get a sample out. Now for stacks or pits, what we're going to have to do is do what we call core sampling from the top uh, of that stack, which means literally punching uh, a hole through the plastic and coring a sample out. Now that is physically hard work. Any of us that have done it can vouch for that and you do obviously need a corer to do that. There are uh, potentially your rural uh, merchant rep uh, or other companies will come and do that sampling for you, uh, maybe a bit easier. The other thing uh, with taking from bales is, in theory, we can core those, but hey, you know, baler technology's come a long way over the last few years, a couple of decades, and wow, some of those bales are pretty tightly compacted. So for balage, yeah, it might be a mission to get core samples out of those bales, and you may want to just feed out a couple of uh, bales, even if you're not planning to feed them out routinely from now on, just to get a sample from those. Look, there's quite a bit of science around sampling techniques for taking silage samples, including the, the minimum numbers, and we're not going to go into great detail about this. But what we will acknowledge is the importance of collecting lots and lots of samples, multiple samples from several areas across your silage stack, or in the case of bales, taking several samples from several bales in a line of baleage. Clearly, in the ideal world, we could send each of those samples away separately to get an idea of the some of the variation and the quality of your stack or bales, but uh, yeah, that's getting a bit expensive, hey? So what you can do is do what we call pooling your samples. So now nah, that's not chucking them in the swimming pool, calm down. What it is is actually getting a big bucket, or hey, anything you want, could be a plastic bin, uh, just something big, and as you grab all your multiple samples, you biff them into that bin or bucket, and when you've finished collecting the different samples, what we do is we mix those samples really well in that bucket or bin. And then you take what we call a subsample or a big grab from several points within your mixed sample and then combine those and, and shove them into one of the bags supplied by the feed testing lab. Once you've got that sample, what you want to do once it's in its plastic bag is try to squeeze out as much excess air out of the sample bag and seal it up really well. Uh, you really need to keep it cool, preferably in the fridge before couriering the sample to the feed testing lab. The rule of thumb there would be don't send it late, uh, like Thursday or Friday in the week, or otherwise it may end up sitting around in the back of a courier van all weekend, non-refrigerated, and it'll be decidedly festy by the time it gets to the lab the following week. You'll get some pretty weird results on your feed test, so you think, oh, that looked a really good sample, and it comes back saying actually it was pretty poor, and chances are that it's actually gone a bit rotten sometime um, from leaving your place or when you drop it off to be couriered away. So, yeah, keep it in the fridge. Don't freeze it. It's a typical rule of thumb for most labs, but not all. But, yeah, keep it in the fridge. And if you're out and about in your ute, just uh, take take a, a chilli bin and, and some um, cold packs and just try and keep it cool till you can get it sent away. So let's fast forward to the point when, hey, you've collected your samples and a few days later you get the results back. Now, the turnaround time depends on what you've asked the lab to do. If it's a basic analysis with perhaps just dry matter, protein, megajoules and metabolizable energy, and um, that's about it, it might be quite quick to come back. On the other hand, if you've asked for a full, in this case we've been talking about silage profiles, and that will include silage volatile fatty acids, so hold that thought, we'll come back to that in episode two. And in the case of what we are talking about in this episode, 
minerals, sometimes it may be, you know, up to 10 working days before you get those results back. So the more you ask for, the more complicated the sampling, uh, the feed test results will take longer to come back. So back to these feed test results. Let's say you've got the results back. Uh, they're on your phone or, or on your tablet. You've opened it up. You've poured a cuppa and there's all these numbers. Wow. And I think this is some of the put off for some people and understandably so that, you know, we say, well, why are we going to feed test if we can't interpret all these numbers? Well, look, the good thing is, is that depending on the lab you've sent it to, it's very likely that they have supplied you with a normal range for each of the things that you've tested for. When they say a normal range, it's just an expected range. And if it's high or low outside of that range, sometimes for some types of silages, it's actually okay. Let's say, for example, the pH or acidity. Now, with lucerne baleage, for example, we have a higher normal range for lucerne baleage than we do for grass baleage. That's just because it's harder to get a very low pH result in lucerne baleage because it has what's called a high buffering capacity. More about that in part two. But just acknowledging the, the normal range is more an expected range and it's not necessarily absolutely uh, devastating if you fall outside of a normal range, depending on the result and depending on the type of feed that you're testing. So what we'll do here is I thought I'd take an actual feed test result that we received last week for a pasture silage sample. Now, we're not going to incriminate the innocents, so no names are mentioned here, but let's just say the sample was collected because apparently the animals were being offered this stack silage and the animals would not eat it, flatly refused to eat it. And the other comment that came with the silage analysis was the comment that the silage smelt pretty foul, pretty rotten. So it's an anonymous sample, but let's use this as an example. Now, the results have come back from a well-known New Zealand feed testing laboratory, Hill Laboratories, who are very well known. And there's a good chance that if you get test results done, it'll come back from Hill's. If you request a full silage test from Hills, it'll come back with a lot of numbers and results. So as mentioned before, we're going to split the interpretation of this feed test result into two parts over these two podcasts. And we're going to cover the mineral ones and the nitrogen from this silage test and step by step work through what the numbers might mean. So I know on a podcast you can't sort of lean over my shoulder and take a look at these results. But look, picture this. We've clicked on the file attachment from the lab and we've opened it on your tablet. In this case, these results have come back from Hill Laboratories. And when you get the results from them, the first number at the top of the page will be the nitrogen results. And if you've requested the full analysis, we then move into minerals. Up the top, you'll get two nitrogen values. And all that is is simply the amount of nitrogen in the feed. If you're an agronomist, you might be interested in this result as an indicator of was there enough nitrogen to encourage good plant growth with that pasture sample? So the agronomists are usually more interested in the nitrogen than we do when we're sitting on the nutrition of the animal's side of the fence. But look, and because of that, I'll be honest, I usually skim past the nitrogen values because, bizarrely, we're actually going to see that value again further down the list of results as what's called crude protein. So put simply, crude protein is calculated by multiplying that nitrogen value 
and it's the second of the nitrogen value on the hills results, so you get the 1% of dry matter, and you multiply that N value by 6.25. Now you can try this out on your own feed test results, but in the case of the one in front of me here, it says on a dry matter basis, there is 1.6% nitrogen uh, as a percentage of dry matter basis. Now just test test it, if you don't trust me, multiply that nitrogen value by 6.25, and ta-da, magically, we have accrued protein content in our silage of 10%. So that's real simple. So as I say, skim past nitrogen, you'll find it again as crude protein further down below. And you're probably already ahead of us on that one. So nitrogen at 1.6, yeah, that's low for silage. And 10% for pasture silage crude protein is also low. But we're going to come on to that in episode two when we talk about crude protein. Back to the Hill Laboratory feed test silage result. The next value down, depending on which one you've requested from Hills, is the macro mineral section. Now that includes, macro means big, it means the, the minerals that are present in quite large amounts. So macro minerals include phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, calcium, magnesium and sodium. Now, future Rumen podcasts are going to include specific podcasts about each of these minerals, but in the meantime, we're just going to skim through them today. So the silage sample sitting in front of us here says that the, the content of phosphorus is about 0.28. Now, for many stock classes, that's actually fine, but it could be on the low side of normal uh particularly when you look at the range reported by Hills of being normal or expected as 0.3 to 0.4. But acknowledging here that the phosphorus requirements of ruminants is, of course, variable. And, you know, low-performance animals fed at maintenance have low requirements. High-performance animals such as uh, or early to mid-lactation dairy cows or uh, in-calf cattle on a forage crop have a higher requirement for phosphorus than an animal fed at maintenance when it's not growing or doing anything. So when we say normal range from the feed test results, of course you're going to have to put your own view on that, depending on what stock class that the silage is going to be fed to. And of course how much of the diet that silage is going to uh, deliver. So if you have uh, a uh, in-calf dairy cow consuming 13 kilos of dry matter perhaps uh, and the silage is only going to provide one kilogram of dry matter well you know if the phosphorus is on the low side in the silage but it's high in the pasture that that perhaps that cow is eating then we're not too worried about the low phosphorus so summing up it's a combination of how much of a macro mineral in this case phosphorus is in your silage but then more importantly how much of the final diet is that going to is that silage going to contribute to? So sometimes low is not good, and if you are feeding that silage as a total diet to a dry cow in a feed barn, that 0.28 might not be so good for a late gestation cow. But on the other hand, uh, if you're feeding it as part of a diet, we're not too worried. Well, the next macro mineral, potassium. Now, from a ruminant nutrition point of view, this is one mineral we don't worry too much about. When we look at this sample in front of us, it says it contains 2% potassium on a dry matter basis. Now, if we look at the range provided by Hills, that says that 2% is kind of on the low side. 
and we could potentially be running a bit lean for potassium. Now, ruminants actually don't need a whole lot of potassium, usually about 1% potassium on a dry matter basis. So there's no way 2% will leave an animal deficient in potassium. However, there's an issue potentially uh, from an agronomic point of view because 2% could be getting a little bit lean uh, in terms of herbage content for potassium for, for growing uh, good quality uh, pasture for silage, particularly for legumes. So um, the normal range on hills says we're on the low side of normal for potassium at 2%, but actually there's more than enough for ruminants. So normal or expected ranges don't always equate with getting into too much trouble from the animal point of view. Sulphur is another macro mineral. Now on the hills, normal range is 0.25 to 0.4 and our sample is 0.32. Now it's rare for New Zealand foragers to contain very low levels of sulphur, but occasionally we will see it, particularly when protein levels on your feed, such as the silage, are very low. And quite often when we correct a low protein diet by adding additional protein, perhaps as high quality baleage or even a bit of soybean meal, that sulphur problem tends to sort itself out. So primary sulphur deficiency on New Zealand silages is unlikely to cause a major issue for your ruminant stock classes. Calcium. Now this silage sample in front of us contains 0.58% calcium on a dry matter basis. So if we look at the normal range, yeah, that fits in a normal range of, as reported by Hills, of 0.4 to 0.8% of dry matter. But hey, the calcium story is very similar to what we've already explained for phosphorus. The amount of silage um, in the diet will determine how important a low level of calcium may be. If the silage is fed as a small proportion of the diet and everything else in the diet has got ample calcium in it, we don't have to worry too much about it. So yes, it's very much determined by the percentage of your silage as a total diet and the demands of your stock class. Clearly young growing animals, lactating animals uh, and even in late gestation like uh, you carrying triplets, they're going to need a heap more calcium than a mixed stage stock class who's been fed at maintenance and isn't growing or lactating or um, isn't pregnant. So yeah, interpreting that's a little bit um, complicated by the fact it depends on how much that silage is contributing to a whole diet. Next on the list is magnesium. So this sample in front of us here says that there is 0.17% magnesium on a dry matter basis, which again is on the low side of what we might expect for a silage sample. But as many of you probably know, magnesium is quite a tricky one because not all stock classes necessarily need a whole lot of magnesium. And interpreting magnesium results is complicated by the fact that the availability of, it, of magnesium to the animal is sometimes reduced, especially when the diet contains too much potassium or protein, and especially if that protein contains a lot of rumen degradable protein. And what and as a subset of that, what we call non-protein nitrogen. So we're going to cover that in another full room and room podcast that talks just about magnesium. But yeah, just with regard to magnesium, we've got the same issue with the other, um, like calcium and phosphorus, that it depends how much of the diet your silage is contributing to, whether it's 100% of a diet or just maybe one, one kilo out of 12 or 13. 
but also that in the presence of potassium and protein, the availability of magnesium does jump around a bit. So at best, magnesium might be 30% available to the cow, and it comes down lower than that in the presence of a lot of potassium and protein. More about that in a future podcast. One other comment about magnesium, and I'm just as guilty as the next person with this, is not to get mixed up when looking at feed test results between magnesium and one of the trace minerals called manganese. I mean, oh, look, I've done that when I've been typing uh, perhaps a farm report or whatever, but just watch those two minerals. It's a shame they're so similar in name, uh, but of course they're very different in function from a ruminant nutrition point of view. Moving on through the feed test results on the silage, the sodium levels are actually rather on low, and so they're just under 0.1% of dry matter. Now, for some stock classes, this could be on the low side, but again, it depends what else is in the diet and how much of the diet is made up from the silage. Now, it's not uncommon for sodium to be deficient in forages, pastures and silages in New Zealand, depending on where those pastures are grown and on the type of silage. Now, maize silage is always going to contain low levels of sodium, no matter what we do to manage the crop pre-harvest. So it's a high probability you're going to have to supplement with usually the cheapest source of sodium, which is salt, when you feed maize silage. But that would be as instructed by your nutritionist or your vet. Similarly, leucine silage also doesn't contain much sodium and again may need supplementation with salt. As far as the other silage types, and you know, this podcast is talking specifically about pasture, uh, these can be quite variable as far as sodium content goes. Because New Zealand's a, quite a small country, I suppose you call it an oceanic uh, country where a lot of us front onto coastline, and that means a lot of our pastures and indeed crops are exposed to salt from the sea if prevailing winds bring salt off the sea. And you can get quite high levels of sodium in your pasture silage. But look, a lot of that depends on how far from the coast you are. Uh, For example, in Marlborough right down through to Otago, we have uh, often a prevailing easterly wind and you'll get quite high levels of sodium on the coast in in your pastures and silage is made from those pastures. But as we trek inland, and usually it's between 40 and 50 k's inland towards the Southern Alps, uh, we start to become sodium deficient in our pastures again. Similarly, uh, in the North Island, uh, around uh, Central Plateau, Taupo, uh, Riparoa, Rotorua, up through there, that's the lowest levels of sodium in the whole of New Zealand, and you'll get very low levels of sodium in both pastures and silages made from those pastures. Enough said about sodium. That's some macro minerals, and now we're moving into the trace mineral section of the silage feed test result. Now, in the way that the results are laid out with Hill Laboratories, and must say thanks to Hills, uh, we find them a really good lab to deal with, the first one of the trace minerals on our hit list is iron. Now, again, we're provided with a normal range of perhaps 50 to 200 milligrams of iron per kilogram of dry matter. Look, to be honest with you, when I'm skimming through these results, I don't take a lot of notice about iron levels on feed test results for our grazing ruminant species. Now, the reason for that is that our ruminants eat a hell of a lot of dirt on a day-to-day basis when they're grazing. 
dirt or soil is a wonderful source of iron, so actually our adult ruminants get heaps of iron from that dirt that they eat inadvertently. So whilst I don't take a lot of interest in iron, the one thing I do look at is to make sure that it's not randomly high. So if you get a result back that says... 700 milligrams, 900 milligrams of iron per kilogram of dry matter, that is a big red flag. And the reason for that is it suggests that while we've been sampling our silages, somehow we've got some soil in amongst our silage sample. Now that might have been inadvertently that we've uh, picked a sample that had some dirt uh, on it if you've made that silage during quite wet conditions and you've been rolling that stack and picked up a lot of dirt on the tyres of the tractor or whatever you've used to roll that stack and you've inadvertently got soil amongst your sample. Or, and we're not talking about pasture samples today, but the other thing, if you get a high iron level on a fresh pasture sample, there's a good chance that sample's got either dusty with dirt or you've had some mud splash up onto that um, pasture before you've cut it. Now, I'm talking a lot about iron as a proxy or as an indicator for soil contamination. Now, the reason... Um, I'm concerned about that if it's a silage sample and it's come from tyres from uh, your tractor rolling the stack. That's a concerning sign. If you get dirt and soil in amongst your silage stack while you're rolling, that can be bad news. Now what happens is the soil is, ca is carrying in a lot of bugs and bacteria and stuff that we really don't want in your stack. And there's one type of bacteria called Clostridia that can potentially wreck the quality of your silage. More about Clostridia in the second episode of silage feed test interpretation because while we don't test for Clostridia, sometimes you get a sample uh, that is strange with high pH, um, the wrong types of volatile fatty acids, and that can be indicative of Clostridia. More about that in the next episode, so tune in. So yeah, if your uh, iron levels in your silage are low, that's fine. Very high levels of iron is suggesting you may have dirt or soil in your silage, which isn't good. It may cause false results with the rest of the trace mineral results as well, because things such as, for example, molybdenum are very high in soil. And if your iron level is high then and your molybdenum level is high, it may not actually reflect what's in the silage sample, but and actually it's reflecting that you have soil contamination that's carried inappropriately large amounts of molybdenum in as well. Next on our hit list uh, for trace mineral interpretation is one called manganese. Now we know we're not going to get that muddled up with magnesium, are we? So manganese, uh, for us here in New Zealand, look, it's pretty unusual to see silage samples that are deficient in manganese or partial samples, uh, to be fair. The sample I've actually got in front of me um, it says 220 milligrams of manganese per kilogram dry matter and hills say sort of 40 to 150. It is rare that we see manganese deficiency in New Zealand's uh, ruminant species. But hey, as always, follow your vet or nutritionist's recommendations uh, if he or she suspects your stock might be manganese deficient. Zinc as a trace mineral. Now this is an interesting one. Yes, uh, our ruminants definitely need zinc. And look, in parts of New Zealand, zinc levels can be a little bit on the low side in forages, including pastures and silages such as this one. It does seem to be a geographical thing, as zinc is often higher in the North Island 
and so pasture, uh, pastures and silage made from pasture of a North Island usually contains, I think the values on average might be around 35 milligrams of zinc per kilogram dry matter. That said, uh, I know that, that I've seen and, and others uh, in Canterbury here, where I'm based, have seen quite low zinc levels in pasture and pasture silage harvested from some of the lighter soils either side of the braided rivers in Canterbury, uh, you know, for example, the Waimak or Rakaia. So, yeah, it's very variable throughout New Zealand, which is not unsurprising given the, the very recent uh, nature of our soils uh, versus um, some of the big continents like Australia where a lot of weathering's gone, gone on over millions of years. So you'll see, going back to your feed test results, that the normal range for zinc's maybe 30 to 50. And the silage uh, on the table sitting here says 38 milligrams per kilogram dry matter, so there's, there's nothing too much wrong with that. As I say, uh, samples could be in, into the low 20s uh, in parts of the South Island. Copper. Now, this is another interesting one, and it's a really important one for our ruminant species. So all our ruminants do need copper uh, in some degree. Even some of the species of sheep, such as texels, that um, are intolerant to high levels of copper, they still have a basal requirement for copper. Now, our forage types across New Zealand are all over the place with regard to copper accumulation. Like Some forages, like brassicas, accumulate hardly any copper. Uh, pastures that contain legumes and of course lucian stands contain the most copper and with regard to just our mixed sward pastures there's a huge variation within New Zealand of how much copper is available to plants so yeah in pastures and, and um, silages it's really important if you want to look at copper that you do get a feed test result and not rely on book values. Now the other issue with copper is just because it's in your silage sample or feed sample, it's not necessarily going to end up available to the animal, particularly if your feed sample, in this case silage, contains high levels of sulphur and or molybdenum or lots of iron coming from soil ingestion or stock water or lots of zinc floating around in the diet, either that's just naturally available there in the plant or if you're in the parts of New Zealand where you use uh, prophylactic zinc treatment to prevent facial eczema. So all of those minerals, let's just recap this. Oh, sulfur, molybdenum, iron, zinc, goodness, all those things uh, that work in different ways to block the absorption of copper uh, from the gut into the blood. Or in the case of sulfur and molybdenum, they form uh, really bound up complexes with copper even in the blood so the tissues can't even access that copper so yeah relying just on copper levels in your feed test in this case silage to predict the likelihood of copper deficiency actually it's really hard to do there's lots of rules of thumb about ratios of copper uh, to, to sulfur and to molybdenum and predicting whether it's going to cause a deficiency but actually much as feed tests are interesting it's actually going to be much better that you get your vet involved to take either some blood or even preferably some liver samples from culled animals that are going to the works to check the copper status rather than trying to figure out whether copper in the feed samples is actually going to end up in the blood and liver of the animal. That said, feed samples are always good to look at. In this case, uh, our feed sample on our pasture silage here uh, is reported as the um, as containing 7 milligrams of copper uh, per kilogram dry matter 
And that's versus a normal range of perhaps 8 to 15 milligrams of copper per kilogram of dry matter. But yeah, look, your copper requirements are determined very much by the requirements of your stock class. Uh, in the case of sheep, by the genetic background, we've got to be careful not to overdose some breeds with copper. And, of course, the proportion of uh, the diet that's made up of, of this case, um, the pasture silage. So, yeah, that's interesting. Shuffling along next on the Hills Lab report to boron, and I'm going to be very honest with you, I'm not particularly interested in boron from the animal's point of view. Uh, I know that some ruminant nutritionists out there are interested in boron levels for animals, um, but look, to be honest, I very much prioritise the boron content from the plant's point of view, especially if you're growing brassicas, because boron's really important for keeping brassicas healthy and um, holding off diseases such like in, in turnips, such as what's called brown heart. Uh, but look, from the animal's point of view, I don't get too, uh, too concerned about boron, but do respect that there's a bit of variation out there around professional opinion on that one. Molybdenum, I'll call that molly because molybdenum's quite a quite a handful to keep saying. But look, in my opinion, this is another one that we don't need to worry about too much with regard to molybdenum deficiency for animals grazing in New Zealand. Certainly animals do need molybdenum, but they don't need a whole lot. So deficiencies in, in molybdenum are unlikely in New Zealand grazing animals. Uh, on the other hand, if you're a plant, uh, and I know we're talking about animals here, but if you're a plant and you're a legume, such as a clover or lucerne, um, you do love molly. So if molybdenum or molly is low on your feed samples, you'd be looking at a little bit of concern. There's not enough uh, to support legume growth. What about high levels of molybdenum? Now, if you're holding on tight for this journey on minerals, you'll recall that uh, molly or molybdenum can bind up copper and make it less available to the animal. So once molly levels start to get higher than 0.5, so 0.5 of a milligram of molly per kilogram of dry matter, that does imply we're potentially starting to get reduced availability of copper from the feed to the animal. And certainly once molly levels are higher than 2 milligrams of, uh, of molly per kilogram, and most certainly more than 5 milligrams of molly per kilogram of dry matter, it's a high probability that the copper uptake um, by uh, the gut of the animal will be reduced and more of that copper is lost to the animal and is not available. So as we said before, if you think molly is high and could be interfering with your copper in your stock, you're best to get that confirmed by your vet taking the necessary blood or liver samples to check your copper levels. If they're low, Despite your efforts to supplement with copper, it may be you've got high molybdenum in your feed samples. So our silage sitting here in front of me is reporting a molly level of 0.67. It's not unusual uh, for many silage samples, depending particularly on the ratio of grass to legumes and to herbs in that sample. Grass species on average contain uh, less or lower amounts of molly and legumes and herbs contain more. Uh, but yeah, remembering that Quite often, if you've been taking harvesting silage year on year on year from a runoff black block, for example, you want to talk to an agronomist or a soil fert specialist uh, about potentially adding more molly to make sure that that's supporting good legume growth. But yeah, that's the plant, not the animal. 
So yeah, wrapping up on Molly, don't worry if the levels are too low, <laughs> unless you're a legume. We're talking about the animal's point of view. But do worry if levels are very high. Uh, you may need to directly check the copper status of your stock uh, and see whether that Molly's interfering with copper uptake. Moving right along, cobalt in the silage sample. Well, look, interestingly, this cobalt result isn't too bad at 0.1 milligrams per kilogram of dry matter. Often we'll see uh, samples of silages and pastures that are very, very low in cobalt because unless we apply cobalt fertiliser to our pastures, usually they contain low levels and quite often the lab can't even detect levels of cobalt. Now, again, that will depend where in New Zealand you are and many of you would have heard of the uh, syndrome bush sickness that caused a lot of problems, particularly in the central North Island when bush was cleared uh, for pastures where animals just simply did not thrive due to severe cobalt deficiencies. So, yeah, um, not unusual to find very low levels. And if you want to fortify your pastures that you're cutting for silage, with cobalt, usually that's cobalt sulfate applied as directed um, to pastures by typically your first specialist or your veterinarian. So the normal range uh, for cobalt on the, these Hill Laboratory results is between 0.08 and 0.15, and to be fair, that will cover off the requirements for most ruminant species. Uh, many dairy farmers will routinely supplement extra cobalt, uh, particularly for young uh, replacement dairy cattle and also for lactating and pregnant dairy cows and many of the common multi-mineral products will contain cobalt uh, that can be added to either to feed or stock water. The other way to sort a cobalt deficiency um, if it's been indicated by your vet based on results for vitamin B12 uh, and our vitamin B12 uh, can be measured uh, particularly on livers, um, but uh, occasionally on blood for cattle. And the reason we look at vitamin B12 to assess cobalt sufficiency in the diet is that cobalt's an integral part of the animal manufacturing its own vitamin B12 in the rumen, so it's pretty cool. It can uh, generate its own vitamin B12, but if there's not enough dietary cobalt, uh, there's not enough to form the basis of the molecule of vitamin B12, so the animal misses out. So, yeah, more details about cobalt and vitamin B12 another day. But, yeah, you can inject stock directly uh, with vitamin B12 uh, as a subcutaneous injection, either short or long-acting. Finishing up with selenium as the last mineral that's appeared on this particular silage feed test result. And this has come back at 0.02 milligrams of selenium uh, per kilogram of dry matter, which is very low for some but not all stock classes. Now, he'll say the expected range for selenium should be somewhere between 0.05 to 0.15 milligrams of selenium per kilogram of dry matter. But if you hit up good old Google and Google normal selenium uh, silage pasture, you'll get a huge range of normal range requirements for selenium with some references uh, suggesting you need up to 0.3 milligrams of selenium per kilogram dry matter. So look, this is quite a controversial topic for another day. We'll definitely do another uh, podcast, particularly if you guys ask for it, about selenium. And that particular podcast will deep dive into more about selenium, including why different people, different nutritionists, different farmers and vets will often have different 
extremely different opinions about just how much selenium is not enough or too much uh, in our feed samples that we get tested. So another story, another day, and very worthy of uh, deep diving into more detail. Now, this particular feed test result hasn't included iodine. Uh, that is a usually a optional extra to tick the box. And yes, um, some parts of New Zealand and for some stock classes we may be potentially deficient in iodine. Uh, but look, it does depend on a range of factors and we will do an iodine-specific podcast. For those of you in the dairy industry, you're probably familiar with iodine being routinely part uh, of uh, mineral, trace mineral products because usually those products contain copper, selenium, cobalt, zinc and iodine and particularly iodine is added as an additional uh, mineral through mating to try and get cows to improve expression of heat. So for this podcast, we're going to finish up on the mineral section of the Hills feed test result from our silage with just one more mineral, and it's actually a macro mineral. I'm not sure why Hills always report it underneath the trace mineral section when the macros were dealt with further up the page, but hey, it's, um, it's not a major for us anyway, look, to be honest. With regard to chloride levels, we usually have ample to meet the, uh, the needs of our ruminants, especially when you get salt spray onto your feeds and your pastures from the sea. Um, so again, you know, usually within 40 to 50 k's of the coast, depending on your prevailing wind direction. And that's because salt from salt spray, of course, contains not only sodium that we talked about before, but of course it contains chloride. So sodium chloride is common salt, like what you chuck on your fish and chips. So the main reason from a nutritional point of view that we might occasionally be extra interested in chloride would be for those of you in the dairy industry when you are feed testing feeds to feed to your springer cows, so those cows that are uttering up before calving. Now, depending on your school of thought around prevention of metabolic disease, a lot of people like to look at what we call the dietary cationic anionic difference, or DCAT calculation. Now, that calculation takes macro minerals, uh, sodium and potassium, and uh, the anions sulfur and chloride to calculate what risk of metabolic disease occurs uh, in springers before calving. So to do those calculations, you most certainly do need a chloride result, as is provided to us by Hills. But yeah, for most of us not dealing with springers and dairy cows, you're not going to need that. Right, we, we reckon that's more than enough about this particular part of the feed test result on the silage sample um, that's been tested and, and provided to us by Hill Laboratories. Summing up, the mineral levels we've talked about to, uh, for this podcast have included the macro minerals, that's the big stuff that's present as percent of dry matter, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, calcium, magnesium, sodium and chloride. Now most of the levels on this particular feed test in front, uh, sitting in front of me here look okay with the exception perhaps for sodium which is a bit on the low side. But hey remember, and this is important, it's rare in New Zealand to fully feed ruminants on just one type of silage. So you need to look at the minerals that are in the other types of feeds that are part of a diet and um, calculate through just what the overall mineral delivery is. The trace minerals, just to recap, remember iron was moderate, was just under 200 milligrams per kilogram dry matter. Uh, not that low, but hey, ruminants get a heap of iron from dirt they eat during grazing, so we're not too phased about that. More a red flag if iron was too high, because remember that's a flag for soil contamination. Some of the other minerals there, manganese, zinc and copper, hey, they were all pretty good. 
boron, well, I don't personally worry about boron for animals, but I do worry about it uh, for uh, particularly the health of brassica crops. But I do recognise that some nutritionists have their own theories around uh, boron adequacy, so we'll leave people to individualise their, their take on that. Molybdenum or moly, uh, not so worried about deficiencies, but it is uh, of concern if levels are very high because that'll tie up copper availability. And selenium, well, look, most parts of New Zealand, uh, selenium levels are going to be low in your feeds that we feed animals, unless your agronomist or soil scientist or vet has recommended uh, applying selenium either in a quick or slow release uh, type of product to your pastures or crops. And almost all of our stock classes will need extra dietary selenium over and above what's in our feeds. Uh, but you've got to be careful not to overdo it, particularly in lambs. But more about selenium another day. And last but not least, that chloride. Hey, unless you're designing diets for spring and dairy cows, we don't worry too much about those chloride levels. And so summing up on this, there's nothing particular in this part of the mineral profile of this silage sample that explains in any way the refusal by cattle to eat the silage, and that was the original complaint why the test was taken. So we've certainly focused on minerals just because this happened to come in last week and was sitting there on the, on the table to have a look at. In the next episode, part two of interpreting feed test results, we're going to deep dive into the other things that may better explain why the cattle aren't eating the silage. And the things I'm going to be pondering before I even look at the numbers is do we have elevated levels of ammonium in? Do we have uh, high levels of uh, uh, acetate or butyrate uh, as the volatile fatty acids? But to find out more, you're going to have to tune in to the next one as we pay, play detective work on why the cattle won't eat the silage. But that's not to do with the minerals. Hopefully this hasn't been too much of an exhausting podcast. Um, hope you'll, you'll join us uh, shortly for part two. To recap in part two, we're going to delve into the other aspects of silage feed quality, such as protein, fibre, megajoules of metabolizable energy, and those fermentation acids, the volatile fatty acids that are produced during the ensiling process, and how we need to interpret those. In the meantime, look, thanks heaps for joining us today for this podcast. It's been great to have you with us. And we're really looking forward to you tuning in uh, again very soon, particularly to part two of this podcast. This has been Charlotte Westwood, and on behalf of both myself and PG Rights and Seeds, have an awesome day. Cheers. Cheers.